Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. I'm here with uh, Karen Volo. How are you doing, Karen? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. So you're joining us from where? Stockholm, Sweden. So it is the end of your week there today, isn't it? It is, actually. <laughs> you're doing a nice job keeping that glass of wine out of frame, so well done. <laughs> it's, it's almost five. <laughs> almost five. Um, so I've been excited to get you on, Karen. You're uh, kind of a culture expert, and I'd love to just kind of jump into your story, how you kind of got into this culture game and how you, how you came to you know, be where you're at. Wow. Okay. That's a lot to unpack in one little sentence here. <laughs> um, I've written a book called Engage, which was really kind of the journey for me. I, I, prior to that, I was working in executive search and headhunting. So I've always worked with coaching and mentoring people and, um, you know, matching culture to passion and um, personalities. And then after I wrote the book Engage, it came out in 2013, um, at that point, particularly in Europe, people weren't talking so much about engagement. So I spent about a year speaking about it and then people started asking me, okay, we get this. How do you work with this? What do you need to do? And that led to really kind of evolving my business, which is called Evolution or Evolution Academy, where we, our purpose is bringing joy to the workplace. And we do that through working with um, employee engagement, with purpose, and then also with trust and leadership development. So, Tell me about the book Engage, because I have not had a chance to read that yet, but that seemed to kind of kick you off down, down this path on a much deeper level. Look at that. There it is. And all the copies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So, um, you know, it was, it was just kind of an interesting thing because back in, say, 2010, 11, 12, it was tough times. Most companies were laying people off, but these companies kept popping up like they're doing really well. They're hiring people. People seem to love working there. Their customers love them. So I started to reach out and just talk to these people and say, what are you doing differently here? And it just kind of led into this is a way to, you know, get this positive information and lift up some companies. And so we featured 15 companies that were doing really well. I call them amazing companies. And it's a lot of them you've heard of, you know, Zappos and Southwest Airlines. Um, and we tried to look at different ownership structures, different industries and different geographical locations to see, can we find similarities there? And that really kind of put the framework to the uh, model that we use for culture. Um, yeah, so the this engagement thing, right? Like all those amazing companies, they probably have a high level of employee engagement, hence the name. So what are they doing? Like what what were those common threads you were finding? Yeah, so that's what ended up becoming our five cultural keys. And um, I'll go through each of them so you kind of have a good understanding. Because when all of these are very high in a company, that's when you start to see kind of the magic happening on, on a cultural level. First one is um, uh, collaboration. And it's looking at taking teamwork to the next level where there's actually often a time, a feeling of family. Um, people are doing things that, you know, they, it's for the better good of everybody. They collaborate, they work together, and it's really kind of getting higher results because of that and, and a lot of trust. The second cultural key is um, creativity. So that's looking at the innovation and the ideas. Your frontline employees have great ideas. And so finding a way to systematize that and bring that out. The third cultural key is connection. So how do you connect on a deeper level through the values, through the purpose? It's also about communication. How do you communicate internally to the employees, but also externally to the market? The fourth cultural key is um, celebration. So it, that's where we look at 
um, what's going well. We look at appreciation, celebrating the small wins along the way, um, you know, and, and recognition and really focusing in on, on what's going well in the company. And, and we, when you do that, you get more of that, basically. And then the last one is contribution. So some level of giving back where you connect the business to something that making a difference and what ends up happening is that it makes people proud to be saying they work at this company um, and you know it doesn't matter in what level it can be it could be on a local level with the community or it can be environmental but something that's somewhat connected so you get the employees involved with that and uh, when you have all five of those very active and there's different types of what we call um, behavioral based engagement activities that you can do to increase you know if you're not so high and certain of them um, that's when you start to get the magic and the, and the culture that you get the engagement for the employees. So what would be one of those for the third one connection? Like what's an example of those behavioral engagement things to fix it? Um, so most companies have their values. That's something that they have. Um, and then it's a matter of really defining those values and actually kind of, I, I call a, a tool that I work with is called double clicking. And so, you know, you can say, okay, one of our values is integrity. Well, what does that mean? You know, mm -hmm. you can have a company with 500 or 5,000 employees and it could mean a different thing to everybody. So it's a matter of really defining, you know, what does this mean? And then how do I act this out in my business or on my day-to-day -day basis at work? So that's just one quick one in terms of doing that. And I mean, there's different ways you can do them in, in fun ways. Like if you've got, if you're going to focus in on the values again and, um, you could just look at, you know, integrity, like maybe giving out an award once a month on who had the highest level of integrity or whatever the case might be, you know, I mean, there's ways to weave it into the business in a way that systematizes it and helps to increase the engagement. And how, how important is consistency in that? That's another C word that didn't make the list of five there. Nope, that's not in my list, um, <laughs> but it's very important. Um, and the reason being is that oftentimes, and I, this really you know, drives me nuts, but you'll get CEOs that say, oh, we'll do a kickoff and that's good for the year. We don't need to do anything more. And engagement is a very volatile thing. So you can have someone who's very engaged and then all of a sudden their child gets sick. And so they kind of fall into the disengaged category. Um, we lean a lot on the research from Gallup, which, you know, is kind of the benchmark for the levels of engagement. Um, but so people can switch from in being engaged to being disengaged. And so you have to constantly work with it to, to kind of let that positive energy spread inside of the organization. Yeah. You know, when you think about the culture of a company and you're going to start a cultural initiative, it's really like building a bonfire and <laughs> the bonfire it's not like flipping a switch is my point, right? Like a bonfire takes work to keep that fire going. And as more people surround that fire, you have to make that thing bigger and bigger. And it takes more and more effort to get going and the fire can die down or the fire can be, you know, raging and so forth. But it takes that ongoing effort. Where do you see, like, what do you think the root of that is when somebody thinks it's more like flipping a switch and then six months in that bonfire is kind of dwindled out? Um, it can be different factors. I mean, authenticity is one that I see quite a bit where, you know, they, they make an effort. They do. I mean, you see this all the time. Companies will have their kickoffs or they'll do some event. Everyone's super motivated. They're excited. They feel connected. They come back. And within, you know, a week or two, it's like all that energy is just kind of drained away. It's like, yeah, okay, back to the same old. So it takes, you know, roughly five to six weeks to get a habit in place. That's why you need to, like you were talking about consistency, you need to systematize it. When you systematize the activities, that's when you can get, start to get the consistency and keep the energy level high. Um, you know, and, and it doesn't 
have to be, I mean, it can be on a daily basis, it can be on a weekly basis, it can be on a monthly basis, but something that's ongoing that people start to look forward to and start to expect. And so in my experience, there is a tipping point, right? Like there's some state of the world where the culture's weak. And then there's a future state of the world where it's quote unquote strong, right? So there's some inertia point. There's some point where the inertia of the train sort of takes over and that carries the momentum forward more than just the just sort of sheer will of just pushing it forward. You know what I'm saying? I know it's probably different for everybody, but how long does that take? How long does it take for that tipping point to, to be hit to where the culture turns into, I kind of call it a perpetual motion machine where it's just reinforcing itself. You know what I'm saying? It's not just one person screaming from the rooftops that we need to be authentic or we need to be candid or we need to be high you know, performance, whatever it is. But then there's that true buy-in on the sort of organic boots on the ground level. That's an excellent question. And I'll tell you um, a little bit of my journey in working with culture, because after the book came out, we started certifying people in cultural engagement, which I still do now. Um, but I found over the years, as we were working with this, it's like, you can do all this work, but if you haven't done the deeper inner work, it gets it hard. It's harder for, for it to stick and to make it last. So that has drawn me into um, helping companies discover their bigger purpose of why they're doing what they're doing. Lean on Simon Sinek quite a bit for that. Mm -hmm. And then also with trust. Um, and that's what I've really, that's where a lot of my work now is, is, coming because I had people taking the certification training where I have a section in there. It's called the neuroscience of engagement and trust. And they specifically said, our leaders don't need the rest of this because it's too deep. They're, they don't need to be specialists, but they need that one block because you're talking about neuroscience. And when they learn that they're going to be better leaders, can't you do a leadership development or some sort of leadership training on that? Um, and I was like, Oh, okay. So I, I developed a leadership, um, training on that and it's all about trust and it's based on the neuroscience and when it gets through to people um, it really shifts their mentality it's, it's one of the trainings we do that's like the fastest and most um, impactful because once you learn the neuroscience of conversations and how we relate to each other you can't unlearn it you just practice it so to answer your question how do you keep it on a sustainable level um, I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Zak. He's a neuroeconomist um, and he's a, he's a great individual. He's got a great Ted talk out there and he wrote a book called the trust factor. And it was so funny. Oh, yeah. I, I just read that book actually. Yeah. Okay. So in one of the, I don't remember which chapter it was, but one of those, he's got this formula joy equals purpose plus trust. Right. And I saw that and I'm like, Paul, I need to talk to you. You've just summed up my entire life's work in three words with a formula. <laughs> three words and two symbols. Okay. I know. I'm like, <laughs> we need to talk. So I've interviewed him. I, I do a, um, a podcast as well. It's called the Amazing Leader Series, and it's great. And he was there. Um, and so basically what he was saying is that to sustain the culture, you've got these two levers that you can push on. It's purpose and trust. And they've both been researched so much and made tangible, we can actually see how it has a financial impact on the bottom line. And you know, people that might be resistant to culture work, when you start talking about the numbers and how it does impact, um, for example, um, you know, a high trust organization um, is 300 times more um, productive than a low trust organization. And that has an impact directly to the bottom line. So you start working with those things, then you add on top of that, the cultural keys, then you've got kind of all the building blocks to really build a sustainable culture that can last for a long time. So it's kind of that foundation of um, purpose and trust or the why and trust. And then we have these sort of keys on top that kind of build up upon that foundation. Yeah, so in my model, we have trust as a foundation, then purpose on top of that. 
And then on top of that is the cultural keys. Got it. Um, so I don't know if that was like enlightening or uh, <laughs> frustrating that someone could boil down your work into a little equation like I like loved that. it. It was enlightening for me. <laughs> but those two keys, right? I mean, what's interesting is that there's a ton of massive companies that would, you know, Fortune would say are highly successful companies that really are lacking in both both of those areas, right? They don't maybe have a clear why or they'll have some kind of a nice, you know, purpose that's on the wall or on the website, but the people don't feel that, right? Uh, and then the trust thing, I mean, trust is just seems to be lacking in most organizations that, that, that we come in contact with. And I mean, to your point, there's all this research out there about high trust organizations. Obviously they perform better, but then there, there's also things like there's a lot more internal reports and there's a lot more sort of like ownership, right? The employees feel like this is their place and this is their thing. And it's not just, you know, there's not that kind of dichotomy or whatever. Do you think that a company can ever get as big as a GE? And again, I'm not saying that GE is one of these companies, but a company can get that big, right? Get it, you know, be one of the, you know, the bellwethers of an organization without ever having hit those two main foundation points to a, a, a high degree. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or does it not really matter in terms of growth to size? And maybe that's not even like the right, the right thing to look at in terms of like success. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I, I see that we're shifting the way we do business. And that's kind of how I see our purpose with evolution, my companies, that we're a bridge to this new, new way of thinking. So we've got these old industrial-based systems and thinking um, that, you know, it's very profit-driven. If, even if you look at the languaging that we're using, you know, it's human resources instead of people. You see companies that are very into the culture. They start to change some of their titles. And there's a reason for that, you know. Um, I personally don't like the term human resources just because they're, they're people, they have lives and they have everything going on, you know, besides just work. Um, so the shift into how we're looking at, um, you know, the new way of doing business, then we start talking about the triple bottom line, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with, with um, people, planet and profits, right? So it's a broader perspective. And actually last year in August of 2019, I believe it was, there was some sort of a CEO roundtable dinner or roundtable that, um, I think it was almost 200, 180 some CEOs of major companies signed a declaration to say they wanted to become more purpose driven. And that was like a huge, wow, okay, this is starting to shift because people are starting to realize that if you really want a sustainable business, it can't just be all about economics and continuous growth forever because it's having an impact on the environment. It's burning people out. It's having an impact on productivity. So what do we need to do? And then with my, you know, uh, work and my research, try, I'm always searching for CEOs and leaders who have this already in their place, who already are working with us. And I can give you a great example. Um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, uh, Barry Weimiller, yeah. Bob Chapman. Okay. So yeah. he wrote a book called Everybody Matters. And yeah. um, I've interviewed him and I love his work. And it, he's just showing that if you genuinely care about your people, like, you know, they're going to do well. Right. And so people are starting to look to, towards this to say, okay, how do we do this? And to start to implement, you know, kind of those strategies. And, and my next book that I'm starting to work on now is all about trust and this caring leadership and how do you actually bring this into the workplace and still maintain, you know, the results that you need to have. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Because um, that book, Every, Everybody Matters, one of my favorites that I read this year, 
but it seems very basic. Like once you kind of tear it away, it's like, well, you just have to treat people like human beings. And I mean, think about the main relationships in your life outside of work. Those are caring relationships built on trust where you can be yourself, you can be your authentic, uh, the authentic who you are, right? Like those closest relationships are connection points between the true you, not the you that's wrapped in, a, in your work facade, it's the true you. But like, it seems like when we step into uh, work, it's like we're stepping into outer space. We have to put on some kind of a new suit uh, that doesn't let us sort of actually interact. Um, and I just think it's a little bit weird and ironic that it's taken people like Bob Chapman and what he's done with Waymiller for people to say, oh, wow, this stuff translates. And again, he's not the only one, obviously, but he's a great picture of it because they do, they do take that long-term focus. They do have that sort of work family uh, environment. And I think what's super interesting about his approach is that he's been able to kind of McDonaldize culture in the sense that uh, he's, a, he's been able to sort of systematize the, um, the application of a good culture while still preserving the culture that they're acquiring, right? Because I mean, that company is built through like a lot of acquisitions and it's sort of a conglomerate at this point, but they, it's just kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I'd love for you to kind of speak into that a little bit, because I think what I've seen in my experience is that when there's an acquisition occurring, there's two sort of distinct flavors, right? It's like Dr. Pepper and Pepsi. I don't know what you guys have in Stockholm. Maybe you have those, but like- American, they, I get it. They don't, yeah, I know, I'm playing. Uh, but those are, you know, if you just mix those, that, that turns into a sick, you know, disgusting drink unless you're a five-year-old. <laughs> Great analogy. Yeah. So I can tell you just from changing one word on that. So Bob doesn't call them acquisitions. They're adoptions. Adoptions. Yeah. They have adopted 101 or whatever it is companies over the last 20 years. And that just that one word shifting that shifts the energy of it, you know, and how do you bring them in? And, and I, we haven't gone so deep to see, you know, how they've actually integrated because there is a lot of work when you go, when you are acquiring companies and going through different mergers with the, you know, different cultures, but um, you know, just the attitude of it going into it um, makes a huge difference, you know? So I think there, and, and you're right, Bob has systematized it and there are other companies that are starting to systematize it. And one of the things, I mean, that's why, you know, coming back to leadership development, um, Actually, we recently last year did a uh, CEO culture report and just talked mm -hmm. to CEOs all over the world to see where are you at on culture? What's happening? And basically what they were saying is that it's very important for them. Um, they need to focus in on leadership development because it kind of needs to start from there and it filters down through the organization when you've got everybody of the leaders starting to think this way. The thing is, you know, someone who goes to university gets their MBA, they go into the business world, you know, it's all about results, results, results. You get that kind of um, drilled out of you. <laughs> you know, how do you yeah, care you for know. someone as a human being? So they have to kind of relearn, how do you really care? I mean, good leaders have it inside of them instinctively, but oftentimes, you know, um, sometimes people are promoted to leader to leadership role that maybe don't have the skills for that. They're really good in sales and then they become a sales manager and then it's like, you know, it doesn't translate as quite as well. So you right. need to start to continually develop leaders as well. So in that report, what were some of the, um, what were some of the surprises? And did anybody say, yeah, I don't really care about it. I just care about money. <laughs> um, no, nobody said that. And I will say, you know, I say this in the beginning of the report because everybody that raised their hand and said, yes, we will talk to you about this. 
they had an interest in culture. So, you know, we did get a lot of CEOs talking about it, um, but I'm sure the ones that didn't think that way didn't respond to answer anyway. Right. Um, surprises there, I would say, you know, um, just just that it's it's a really high priority, but they felt a bit like lost in terms of how do we actually do this? Right. You know, they, they haven't quite got that. They're, they're looking, they're trying to figure it out. Um, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point, right? Because again, kind of taking that kind of self-reporting bias into the mix, you know that the people that are probably responding to your survey are people that are like, oh, this looks interesting. It, it would only look interesting if they were already interested in culture and saw the value in it. But, there, but there's this chasm between kind of where they're at and where they're trying to go. And they don't know how to build that rope bridge across the chasm. Yeah, and that's where HR comes in as, as so vital. And that's another thing. I mean, one of the things in terms of culture, the CEO needs to own it and be responsible for it. Um, you know, when they try and just push it off to HR and say, you take care of it, this is your thing. Right. It's a mistake because they really need to walk the talk. That was one thing that came up over and over again. We need to walk the talk. Um, but it's this partnership. And I can tell you, I mean, a bit, I've been in the business world a long time now. And, you know, 15, 20 years ago, marketing and HR, they were like not important. They were thought to be, you know, not, not valuable and didn't have an impact. And it was all about the operations. It was all about the finance. That's switched now. You know, for really progressive leaders and, and CEOs, they want that HR person right there, right as their right hand, and really working in a in a partnership where they're making this big impact in the company. Because they know that if they take care of their people, the business is going to be there and it's going to be doing well and thriving. I think you nailed that, uh, and it's a really interesting transition that we've seen over the last couple of decades. And I think it's just going to kind of continue forward because I think, you know. IT is another example of this. I mean, just think back to 1995. IT didn't have a seat at the table, so to speak, right? But now, obviously, they have a seat at the table, and it obviously matters as part of everybody's strategy. And I think, to your point, marketing's definitely followed close behind IT, and I think kind of HR is following behind that as well. And I think we're going to kind of see that see that kind of acceleration. And I think probably compliance is even a little bit further behind the HR, you know, mentality shift that we're seeing at the top across organizations. Well, you know, to your point, um, talking about ethics and compliance, what's that based in? Trust, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Come back to trust. If you have high trust, that's not going to be an issue. It's all going to be in place. Um, you know, and I think with HR, um, the thing is we've seen so many HR leaders who are more practitioners versus being strategic, and, and that's shifting. And when you can have um, the conversation and then really bring in kind of the financial impact that it has on the business. It totally shifts the dynamics of the relationship and it raises the level of respect for those individuals when they can come and show kind of how it impacts the bottom line. So a lot of my training, I go through that, like, how do we calculate the cost of disengagement? And, and you know, how can you present that to show that this an investment in doing something like this is going to be, you know, a big return on investment for you? Yeah, and I think over the last couple of decades, as these functions have been either deprioritized or just remain at, at the kitty table, whatever, however you want to say it, um, <laughs> people have come into these roles and worked their entire career without ever getting that added dimension of, you know, strategery, kidding, of course, but like putting uh, strategy in the mix and being able to sort of step up out of that, that you know, that kind of two-dimensional plane that they're existing on. Um, and I think when, to your point, when, when folks can 
speak the language of the people on the other side of the fence or at the big kids, you know, at the adult table or, or whatever, it's usually about kind of that bottom line thing. Why do you think they have such a, like, why do you need to have a section in your trainings about how to tie this stuff to the bottom line? Why is it not more obvious? Why has this last mile not been sort of bridged yet, you think? I don't know. <laughs> I'm taught. Um, I mean, there are, I mean, I, I, I talk to so many HR people and I do meet some that already have it in their instinctly, you know, it's, in, it's ingrained in them. Um, I haven't like dove deep into the conversations to see how did you learn all of this? Where did it come from? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it does make a difference. And I think it's just a matter. I, and I, you know, maybe it's, it's like I said, I don't think it's just really taught um, as much as it maybe it should be. And maybe it's coming. I don't know. But I think, I think we're seeing, we had two polarizations, you know, the financial perspective, and it's always about the bottom line. And we have the people and it's always about the people. And they're both edging their way in to know that, you know, okay, we need the people to get the finances. We need the financial, you know, um, viability and, and the healthy situation there for, for the people to be there. And so they're, they're coming together closer. So, you know, I think you're definitely doing your part in trying to bridge that gap. What advice would you give the rest of us, whether we're on either side of this, you know, this thing, what advice would you give us to accelerate that coming together of these two sort of schools of thought or something? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think it really is just a matter about having quality conversations and bringing it up onto the table and say, you know, how can we work together in a better way? Then we come back to collaboration, right? The number one cultural key there is collaborating, finding ways that um, you can convey that the needs need to be met and that you can have that solution and and really, you know, be very solution oriented. be proactive in the sense of coming with ideas and solutions as to what you can do to help bridge that gap. Because then, then I think um, it will get the attention. Yeah. It's just, you know, there, there are these kind of competing forces, right? You have a large organization, let's say they have 20,000 people. um, And it's like that organization has the um, opportunity. And again, maybe this goes back to that Everybody Matters book. I think they kind of talked about this. Yeah, yeah, he was talking about this uh, anecdote where he gets together with this uh, this rich investor of his. Maybe I think he's like a private equity guy or something. And this guy was trying to say, hey, you know, I want to start kind of, you know, giving back. And I think I'm going to sort of spin up a little uh, charity digging wells in Africa or something. And um, Bob said to him, he said, you know, all the companies underneath your portfolio are way more people than what you would affect over there. Why don't you make that backyard your ministry or or whatever the the uh, the thing was? It's it, it's kind of an interesting thing. We have this massive opportunity as leaders uh, to affect the lives of people, you know, because we we have some influence over the space that they spend most of their working or their waking hours, you know, in. Um, and yet, as that opportunity presents itself, as an organization grows it seems like there end up becoming these lines of division between the different functions. So this sort of complex organism starts to kind of break down and becomes more robotic. And a lot of the opportunity seems to kind of dissipate. Yeah. And and what you're touching on there comes back to the fifth cultural key of contribution, you know, doing something that matters, connecting it to a bigger purpose of, you know, and having a bigger impact because humanity and people I mean, everybody working in a company, they are a human being, they're there, they're a person, and we're shifting the way we're thinking globally. I mean, there's something happening that we're really starting to look at. We're all connected. And I mean, we've seen all this going through some of the 2020 things that we're going through right yeah. now, you know, we're You've all been connected. In it together on everything. 
Yeah, we're like, what can we do to really take care? And, and I really want to emphasize that we need to take, you know, it's kind of, we've had this bit of a global pause and we need to look at and evaluate what's really important. Um, you right. know, I talk to people all over the world right now and it's fascinating to see that we've had this global experience, but on an individual level, it's affected everybody so differently and really uniquely. So it's kind of bringing up things that's important for us and the issues that we need to deal with. And we need to remember this to take it back into, so we don't go back to the way things were because we're beyond that. Now we right. are going through a massive transition and we need a higher level of thinking. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from, uh, Albert Einstein that says you can't solve the problems with the same thinking that created it basically. And that's where we are. We have got to have new ways of thinking and, you know, understanding that we are connected. We're all one. And what can we do to take care of our planet, to take care of our environment, to take care of each other so that we all thrive. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's like a lot of negativity this year. There's a lot of negative things that, that have happened. But to your point, there is an opportunity that's come along with all of this chaos. And it's an opportunity for us to kind of hit a reset button in a way to shift our thinking. And I think, you know, the negative, the negative takes care of itself. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunity in this, to your point, to um, change the environments and change the way that we're approaching these dynamics that have been carried over from that industrial age. I mean, look, we're in a knowledge work economy now. So maybe that's helping to kind of bring this stuff into a conversation because the assets are, are human beings and human beings come along, you know, they got hands and heads and hearts, but they also got, you know, baggage that comes with them and they have emotions and those other pieces that are a lot more important in a knowledge. They're a lot more important to consider in a knowledge based economy than they were when it was just a bunch of people on a manufacturing line, twisting wrenches, you know? Yeah, exactly. And um, to that point, I mean, basically, you know, we've gone through this massive shift. And uh, I, I saw figures recently that in the last, you know, six weeks, I think it was, we've like changed about the equivalent of five to seven years, you know, and I know so many companies were like, oh, we're going to get digitalized, you know, we're going to go through this digitalization. <laughs> and it's just like, boom, it happened in, in five weeks, you know, and so we're ready for the next step. What do we need to do? We need to take the good things and then really build on that. So let's talk about some of these principles that you uh, are kind of pushing in your work and in your, uh, in your business. How do any of these translate or need to be tweaked uh, in the context of this, you know, broadly distributed workforce that we're, that we're all dealing with now at all? You know, do they need to be tweaked at all or how do they need to be kind of re <clears throat> reapplied or thought about differently? I think the structure of the workplace is going to be changing because now we've seen that it's very easy to work um, digital or uh, virtually. Um, you see that changing quite a bit. And I think a lot of people have realized, wow, I gained two hours by not having to drive into the office. Yeah. What can I do with that time? So there's going to be a, a need for flexibility. No, but to just have some flexibility in terms of, you know, do people actually need to sit in an office five days a week, 40 hours? No, no, absolutely not. Exactly because to your point that we're a knowledge-based uh, world now. And we have like this tsunami, this tidal wave of technology changes coming that, um, you know, we're what, 2020 now? So we're one fifth into this century. We're supposed right. to be changing equivalent to like 20,000 years in this hundred years. 
So we're going into this massive curve, which means it's going to change, you know, robotics is going to change so much and the AI is going to change so much and all of these things. So we really need to be kind of on top of that and looking to see what's coming and how is our business going to change because of that and not be reactive, but be more proactive. I think that's so vital. And the good news is that we're very adaptable. So as a species, we're probably going to be okay. We're going to adapt really fast, just like we did, you know, seven years in five weeks. We can do more of that. <laughs> but we need to be ready for it. Yeah, and and I think we need to look at a sustainable business. What does that mean? Um, you know, and, and, and then this comes back also to ethics, you know, and doing things that are good for the world, doing things that are good for your community. Yeah, I think, I think there's going to be sort of this separation, which there always is when you're kind of start, start to go through this secular sort of growth curve that the whole world is going Going, gonna, gonna go through, or we're on the precipice of going through, um, and that, and that separation is gonna be between kind of the, the, the people who, I guess, you know, to kind of boil it down, the people who responded to your survey, and the people who just, just deleted it because they got to get to the next thing. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to dive into a little bit about. Um, I read an article that you wrote um, about kind of high performance cultures, and I want to talk about some of those principles in there in the context of maybe a more distributed workforce or in the context of a small team, because you know some of us are working in large organizations. Um, it's hard to kind of change the direction of the battleship you're on, but maybe you can keep your, you know, your galley clean or something like that. Like what can we do to bring some of those high performance things in and sort of start to be the change that we want to see in our, in the world, you know, our workplace, whatever uh, today. So that's a really excellent question. Um... And then I'm going to touch back on the neuroscience for just a second. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in our brains, we have mirror neurons. So if you smile at somebody, guess what? Their chances are they're going to smile back at you because they're, we've got these mirror neurons, right? So when I, and we'll come back to kind of what we started to in the beginning, talking about behavioral based engagement activities. Um, if you see someone from, uh, this is called the 10-5 rule. 10 feet away, you smile. If you see someone five feet away, you say hello. Now, this has worked great in hospitality. It's worked great in hospitals. And, you know, I can give you an example of a hospital that was like, you know, the doctors are like, we're not going to work on culture and engagement. This, we're here to save lives. We don't have time for this. You know, this is ridiculous. We're not going to be involved. And the staff and the nurses and the, you know, caregivers are like, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. So they started doing this. And 10 feet away, a smile five feet away, say hello. And it was amazing because over the next six months, like the um, recovery rates for their patients increased dramatically. And, um, you know, the doctors were saying hi and they felt better, even though it was just kind of because they were doing that. So people have a lot more influence on an individual basis than they probably realize. So if you can think on an individual basis, how can I be a catalyst for joy? How can I bring more joy into the workplace, right? Um, you're going to impact the people around you. So that could be a small team that you work with in a department. That's fine. But you know what happened in this particular example with this hospital? Um, trying to remember, I think it was the cancer department when, for, for children. Whenever the children like finished their treatments, they just celebrated and they you know, were singing and they were having balloons and it was like a party. And other departments were like, wow, what's happening over there? Right. We want to do some of that too. And so it just started to spread. So energy actually spreads, emotions actually spread, and you can spread positive emotions or you can spread the negative emotions, and that is an individual choice. So you can really be a catalyst on an individual basis and have a huge impact on others. Um, I have another story I'll just share real quickly in, um, that I featured in Engage, and it was this, um, it was in a grocery store, 
and uh, this young boy, or I guess he was about 19 or so, had Down syndrome, and he was a bagger, Johnny the bagger. Um, and he heard this inspirational speaker come in and she gave the story that anybody can have an impact. And so he really thought about this. He's like, wow, I'm just a bagger, but what can I do? So he went home and he, his dad helped him and they printed out a bunch of positive quotes and he cut them up into small strips. And so as he was bagging, he would just put a quote in there and he didn't tell anybody what he was doing. Well, about a week later, you know, the cashier where he was bagging, the line was like really long and all the wow. other cashiers were like, you know, nobody's there. And the manager was coming over and saying, there's plenty of cashiers. And no, 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 we'll wait in this line. And they're like, why are you doing this? And like, we, we, wanna, we want Johnny to bag our bags. Oh. And so they're, they're, I mean, people were actually stopping to come home, I mean, on their way home without really needing to go to the grocery store because they wanted one of Johnny's quotes. And so one little individual like that had a huge impact on their business because they got more business, more people coming in because of what he did. So, so it doesn't take that much. <laughs> no, it doesn't take much. And I love both of those stories. And it's really an empowering an empowering thing that we kind of have at, at, our, at our fingertips. We have a lot of power to your point because there is that contagion element on both the positive and the negative side. And we can have that impact. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's so much science behind it. I mean, we do it every day, right? I mean, we feel it every single day, but again, there's, you know, to get back to what I was saying before, there's like this breakdown when we get in, in, into the workplace where we feel like that's not professional or, you know, you saying the word love at work is a, a weird thing to say, or, you know, don't put the family, you know, don't bring that family talk into work because, hey, we're here to get a job done and stuff like that. It's just a very weird thing that happens when people step out of their car and walk that little distance in, into their actual building, you know? Well, I think that's changing a lot with the younger generations coming in because they're so used to everything being so transparent and so connected. And, um, you know, I think, and, and in five years, they're 75% of the workforce. So I think that's another force that's changing how the work environment is going to be um, because they want purpose-driven companies. They want development. They want, um, you know, opportunities to advance. And they are really... Um, they don't have this mentality of, oh, I have to be a different person at work. I am who I am. Let me be who I am, you know? Yeah. So I think it's going to naturally kind of fade out as, as the older generations start to retire a bit more. And, you know, we've got a huge exodus of the baby boomers. And what, do you is, think, what do you think the core of that, that transparency or authenticity thing or the lack of two faces thing is with this generation? Um, I would say it comes back to how we were raised, you know, the bit of the older generations, you had a personality at work, you had a different way of being there, and then you got to be a different person at home. And, and um, technology's changed that. I mean, it used to be, you know, with managers that um, are leaders, you had to be a certain way, you had to know all the answers because you were the manager. Um, and I've interviewed CEOs that have basically said, one of the most powerful things I can say is, I don't know, what do you think? Because then it, you know, it, it opens up the space for ideas, creativity, good conversations that can really bring out ideas that maybe they wouldn't have known otherwise. Yeah, and I guess as that facade is allowed to drop from a leader, it opens up maybe that, I think it's your fifth point of the cultural key, that contribution. You've touched on something that I love and I've seen firsthand really work and that's getting ideas from people who are on the front lines. Because you know, again, think about a manufacturing setting someone coming in four times a year for a board meeting knows a lot less about that manufacturing setup than does the person who's been working on it for the last 15 years. How about ask him for the ideas of how we can increase throughput or make this operation more, more efficient? And I think there's a huge opportunity for people. Again, it's this counterintuitive thing in life, but if you can lean into the, the, if you can authentically lean into 
hey, I don't know, or hey, I don't have all the answers, or hey, I'm just a person like you are, let's figure this thing out, out together. It pushes some of that, that problem-solving ownership out to more people, and it becomes our thing instead of his thing or her thing. And, and that, I mean, if we just look at the kind of the organizational structure, we're shifting now from a very hierarchical structure to a little bit, um, uh, a little chaotic right now into a more networked organization. Yes. So, you know, you're not going to have as much hierarchy. And, and I think that's where, you know, in the sense me being in Sweden, there's a lot of that already going on because we are very flat um, just as a society and, and the way our businesses are run here. So, um, yeah, I definitely see that shifting in that direction. Yeah. And I guess the resistance to the shift probably is maybe due to the uh, comfort that comes from that structure. Like a network is kind of chaotic inherently and there's, you know, wires running everywhere and you don't know who's above or who's below or whatever, which it matters less in sort of a pure network environment, right? Those, those, those placements are uh, less important. But I think that a lot of people gain some comfort in that, well, that's above my pay grade. I don't have to worry about it. I can just kind of come into work, check in, check out, and it, and it is, is what it is. So, you know, it just to get back to your analogy before where it's like, it's kind of inching forward uh, from the, from these different sides of the spectrum, whether you're acclimated toward people or you're acclimated toward, um, you know, task or profit or, or, or whatever, it's also kind of creeping forward between maybe it's intergenerational, maybe it's personality type based, but the, um, the, you know, being able to embrace the chaos of the network, uh, because there's all these benefits that come with it is a hard pill for some folks to swallow who are maybe comfortable in that older type of structure, you know? But see, here we go back to what we talked about earlier, the levers of trust and yeah. purpose. Because if you've got that, it doesn't matter what the structure looks like because the underlying foundation is trust. And you've got a reason as to why I'm here. I'm emotionally connected. I want to be a part of this journey. And when you've got those two things, then it really is easy to do the rest of it. So the ideal, right? Let's say you're running a hospital and uh, you have someone sweeping the floors there. The ideal, right, if you really can crack that kind of purpose nut, that person sweeping the floors, if you ask them what they do, they would say, I'm saving lives, right? It sounds dramatic and it sounds silly in sort of another setting. You know, the, uh, you know, the worst case scenario is like, well, I'm just a janitor and I'm just cleaning up here. I think that picture can be translated across literally every single business. Um, what prevents that translation from occurring and how important is like a truly resonant purpose to that translation happening? Well, I mean, when the purpose is really there um, and it's defined really well for the organization, then you get people really connected to it and buying into it and wanting to be a part of that journey, which is going to increase the engagement. When you don't have that as a very clear thing, or it's just like, you know, the values and that's just slapped on the wall and nobody really lives it then it, you lose the whole potential there because it doesn't really mean much. Yeah, and they so don't again, trust it, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It comes back to trust, right? Right. Um, but that being said, you know, I mean, I've seen this example coming back to janitors. You know, a janitor at a school is like, they're want, they want a clean environment because these are the brilliant minds of tomorrow that are going to be the leaders of the, you know. And so it's, it's quite easy to, once you get it right, to actually figure that out. The interesting thing, coming back a little bit to the hospital environment, because a lot of people are very individually purpose-driven, but they hate the organization. They hate right. the structure there. Um, 
So it's, that's an interesting dynamic just because, you know, on an individual basis, they want to save lives and they have it inside. It's part of their DNA. That's why they became a doctor or a nurse or whatever, but they can't stand the administration or the, the structure. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing, but most of the time, you know, with companies, um, well, most companies don't, haven't done this work to start with, um, but the ones that do, you know, they can, they can really build on it. And the other thing I wanted to just touch on also is that it's really a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. So I've seen a lot of these CEOs that were kind of this old way of thinking, and they've gone on their own personal growing and learning journey themselves. And as they've developed and grown as a person and as an individual and as a leader, they've been able to embrace this new way. And then they've been able to kind of apply it to the company. So it's really interesting to see what kind of a journey they go through themselves. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, you know, that old saying, if a fish thinks it stinks from the head, it kind of goes both ways. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you kind of touched on something that's kind of interesting that many times there's purpose driven people in organizations that have not sort of proclaimed their purpose in a clear sort of authentic way. And I would just love to hear your kind of thoughts about like, what, what do you think the strong forces, um, you know, and are there, and is there a possibility for somebody who's not truly kind of purpose driven, who can't find that they're that own purpose themselves, regardless of the type of organization that they're living in to kind of hit their own tipping point and become purposeful as uh, you know the catalyst being its organization's pursuit of you know purpose of clarity oh that's a big question to un un <laughs> unpack here but um you know when it comes to purpose um i love this quote by mark twain he said the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why so on an individual basis if you can figure out your personal purpose as to why you're here. You know, I think every individual has certain gifts and talents that they're meant to bring into the world of whatever it is, you know, and when you can really figure that out, it brings joy and happiness into your life, but it also brings clarity so that you know, like for example, and I'll just use myself as an example here. I did this work many years ago and I figured out, okay, my purpose is bringing joy to the world. Okay, great. What am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> and then, you know, it just kind of translated into, I've always worked in the corporate world. How can I bring this into the corporate world? Um, so my title is chief joy bringer and, um, you know, and I've just kind of followed where I've seen the need, what the clients have been asking for my, my customers. And, and then, you know, the purpose of our company is bringing joy to the workplace. So it all translates and basically, you know, it gives clarity to make decisions and to know, is this aligned with what I'm supposed to be doing or not? And so on that most important, or on that, uh, important day of your life where you recognize that your purpose was to bring joy to the world what was that process like and how did you land on a high cert, you know, a high level of certainty that that's really why you're here? Um, it was a process I went through um, and it's now a process that I teach in terms of um, on an individual basis. And it was looking at, you know, my experiences, what I've gone through, the ups and the downs of my life, what I've learned, what my values are. There's a whole lot that goes into that. And then basically what ends up happening is that after going through it, it's, it's what I call the inner work. You, you got to know who you are as an individual, um, you know, and people, I, I've worked with people who are in their twenties and in their sixties and, you know, you may at either end of the spectrum, you might not know which purposes and you figure that out and it just starts to give clarity. I actually just heard back from someone who was, you know, in their mid 25 or something. And we did this work like five years ago and she wrote me this message on LinkedIn. She's like, and she gave me, Oh, and I'm still doing this, but it translates into different ways, but it's the purpose statement is still there. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, being willing to do the inner work. And that's also, you know, on a corporate level. 
Um, so companies, yeah, like we right. said, you know, they're willing to do, the, the, the companies are really used to doing the values, the mission, all of that's pretty clear. Whether it's actually acted out in the company or not, that's another thing. Um, right. So that's a part of the work. And then, you know, the companies that are starting to do the purpose-driven statements and figuring that out, um, they're the ones that I think are going to thrive and do really well going into the future. Yeah, and I think that work is hard to do because it's you have to be like, honest first of all uh you have to be like truly introspective and you have to be willing to like let go of things that you're not that you maybe previously or currently wanted to be what does it take to do that trust, trust. <laughs> come back some to of us trust. don't trust ourselves so it's a little hard <laughs> to like, actually dive into that process well it is it can be scary but you know um the the fruits of the journey are, are well worth it yeah and i think you know, again, getting back to fear and, you know, which is maybe the other side of trust. Um, once you can sort of shed those old things and land onto a purpose that's your true why, then it gives you this sort of natural fuel that maybe your engine hasn't even like experienced before. You exactly. Know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so where can people find you? This has been a, this has been a lot of fun. I feel like we could have gone a whole nother hour. We didn't even really talk about your next book or anything like that. So where can people find you and learn, learn, learn more about you and uh, you know, your writings and how to kind of elevate their, their culture and their companies? So, so the best place would be the, the company site, which is um, evolution.com and it's spelled differently. So it's E-V-O-L-O-S-H-E-N.com. Um, and there you, we actually have some great reports. So, you know, if you go to the main page, you can get the report on, you know, the 10 mistakes, um, or 10 biggest mistakes when working on culture. Um, I can give you another one that can actually be really helpful. Um, and it's evolution.com forward slash ROI, uh, what's it called, hyphen, trust. And there you can get a report that's just talking about the 15 metrics on trust. So how do you measure it? So again, coming back to how do you actually make it tangible? So there's a couple uh, of free reports that people great. can get. Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, especially going back to what we were talking about before, where it's really going to be on us, regardless of the company that we're in, assuming that you're not the CEO, it's going to be on us to start being that change we want to see in the world. And part of that is just recognizing that you can have that impact uh, on the world around you. And, you know, you have that kind of power at, at your fingertips. And the other part of it, I think, is being able to uh, or be willing to elevate out of this box that you're in. And part of that is being able to speak the language of other departments, which many times is going to be an ROI type of uh, type of vernacular. So I love that. Uh, I love that tool. We'll uh, we'll link to that and uh, check it out. But I appreciate you coming on. This has been a really a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Have a great uh, great Friday evening. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. <laughs>